So Money Episode 328 and Show Cats. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. So Money is brought to you today by Wix.com. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 70 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website. With hundreds of designer-made customizable templates to choose from, the drag-and-drop editor, and even video backgrounds, there's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. The site empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy. Too busy. Too busy worrying about your budget. Too busy scheduling appointments. Too busy to build a website website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your own website today. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. I've got a former boss on the show today. I do that from time to time. I've had Gene Chatsky on. I've had Jim Cramer on. Now I've got Anne Choquette on the show. She and I worked together when she was at the helm of Seventeen Magazine. She's the former editor-in-chief. I, at the time, it was just back in 2008, wrote the financial column for Seventeen. And Choquette, she's been named by Forbes as one of the most powerful U.S. fashion magazine editors for 10 years and has been shaping the national conversation about and for millennial women. She is currently working on a book about what it takes for young women to be powerful and to be successful, being young and hungry and ambitious. Stay tuned for more information on that front. In the meantime, she has a great informative newsletter that I subscribe to that I recommend you head over to check out. Go to AnneChoquette.com for all of that. In our conversation, we talk about rising to the top of a magazine in New York City. What does it take? How the ambitious and career-focused millennial woman is impacting the dating world and marriage and money and parenthood and the top financial concerns she sees and hears millennial women grapple with. Here is the lovely Anne Choquette. Anne Choquette, welcome to So Money you're kind of my former boss, so I am really honored to have you on the show. People out there, you may not know, I was a contributor to Seventeen Magazine back in, I think it was like 2008, 2009, and you were at the helm of the magazine at that juncture. So it's really lovely to reunite in this in this capacity. Thank you for being on the show. I am thrilled to be here. And you, Tarnoosh, were one of like one of the most important contributors that we had at Seventeen because it was right at the moment of the recession and we needed to talk to young women about money. But it's when you're a teenager, the conversation is much more emotional, right? You're, you're not, we don't want to make you worried about having bills to pay, but certainly you want to have money in your pocket and you're not unaware of what's happening in the world with your parents, right? And so you really helped spearhead an important conversation about 
like, what does money mean to you in your life? And I suspect that's why you are such a big hit with um, millennials these days is because you've been having this conversation with them for the last, you know, seven years and helped see them through um, their early thinking about money. It was an incredible opportunity. And I learned so much from that column because what I really learned was that young people as and, and readers of 17 are not 17. They're 12. They're 13. They're 14. Astute. Summer 18, 19. Summer 18, 19. But you can't assume that just because you're 11 or 12 or 18, you don't have astute and thoughtful questions around money. And that's what I was finding all the time. We would ask girls, what is on your mind? What's worrying you? What is concerning you? And the beautiful thing of that was a lot of them wanted to help their parents. A lot of them wanted Mm. to learn about money. So parents, if you have a young person in your house, be reminded that they, while they are not talking about money regularly, they're taking notice they understand they want to understand things they're passionate about it in some way so you know use that as an opportunity i think it was really for me an eye-opening experience and something that i've never forgotten about that generation that your magazine really opened me up to so thanks for that experience you know it's all about confidence that was my mission i mean frankly that's my mission in life is to help young women find the confidence to walk into any room and own it. And if you feel like you, there's something you don't know, or this, there's this big mystery over there and it's money, um, that's, that strains your confidence. It keeps you from walking into big situations and walking into big rooms. So that was an important piece of, of building young women's confidence. From Seventeen Magazine, you are now working independently. You're working on a book. You have this fantastic newsletter that I subscribe to. Everyone, go to anshoquette.com, subscribe. It's very thought-provoking. Tell me a little bit about, and your work continues with this demographic, the millennial mind, uh, specifically young women. What's the zeitgeist? What are the, describe the young female millennial to us as far as what her hopes are and also what her fears are or concerns, what might be holding them back? So I've had this very long view of young women. I was the editor in chief of 17, um, from, uh, for seven years, starting in 2007. I was one of the founding editors of Cosmo girl back in 1999, if anybody can remember that. And so, you know, we had these really deep conversations about how do you grow into being who you're going to be. And so the work I've really been doing since I left 17 is like, what happens next? What happens as you're starting to put some muscle on the framework of the, of the life that we built together, right? That we talked through all of the emotions. And there was this very sudden change that happened maybe two or three years ago, where the young women who were sort of born out of the recession, all of a sudden they started to come into their own and they they felt there was this incredible ambition. And I could see it from my perch at 17. All, frankly, all of a sudden I got called to do maybe a dozen speeches in a year about how to get started in your career, um, something I talk about a lot. And I just kept seeing this huge uptick in interest from young women in building a meaningful, big career, a big life. And I have, since I have never seen a generation that is as ambitious as this generation of young women, they, but it's not, it's a different kind of ambition. It's not, um, there's no idea of like climbing this big corporate ladder. They are like not interested in leaning in. They're saying, mm-hmm. you lean into me. I want a career with twists and turns and I want 
a side project and a side hustle and I want to move up quickly, right? You hear a lot of a lot of people who are their bosses are saying, oh, these young women who work for me, they want to, they want to get promoted so fast. And the truth is they do. They have skills that are in demand. Um, there's, they want endless adventure. And I frankly think it's incredibly inspiring the way that they look at the world um, with such tremendous optimism and enthusiasm and, and not invested in an old way of doing things. They see there's a very, there's a real pioneering spirit in saying like, well, I'm going to build my own business. I'm going to build my own job. I'm going to build my own destiny. Um, I'm betting on myself rather than betting on some company that to take care of me for the next 20, 30, 40 years in the way that previous generations have done. So I think it's pretty inspiring, a pretty inspiring time to be a young woman and inspiring for the rest of us to sort of learn from that. And all the while, though, there is that parallel conversation about leaning in, about uh, working within the system to achieve fulfillment and happiness and wealth. And so do you find that while this mindset, I totally applaud it and I share in that desire to be your own boss and make your own decisions when it comes to your career and your life, but do you feel like the world is ready for that? Are Are the resources out there? Are the role models out there? Your book will certainly help and you are a force, but you're one person. Who else out there can help to make this seem very real and realistic? I mean, the role models, yeah, frankly, the role models are, um, it's hard, they're hard to find. Um, There are not, we, I have um, a regular dinner series at my house where I invite, um, I invite a couple of young women um, over for dinner to talk through all of this. I call it the itchy emotions around being young and hungry and ambitious. And we talk about that a lot. Who do you look up to? Whose career can you follow? And particularly when it comes to sort of personal matters of putting your life together, finding a man, having children, all of those complicated issues. Um, so the role model piece is definitely is definitely something that I, there's a real hunger for looking for new role models. And I find that the young women who are their peers, in a way, um, are the ones that they look up to. The girls um, who I think you've interviewed, the girls of the skim. Yes. Um, and uh, the Rent the Runway girls or Alexa Von Tobel. Um, and um, those are the kind of pioneers that these young women are idolizing. However, when you ask about um, the conversation about making change at work and are companies really willing to make change, right? They're invested in these power structures and a hierarchy and a path to the top, um, you know, that, that frankly, my generation um, was invested in too, right? When I got a job out of college, I was like, I'm going to do really good at this job and then I'm going to get promoted and then I'm going to move up. And I, I was not, there was a period of time at sort of the dot-com boom where everybody was sort of bouncing around jobs in New York in particular in the late nineties. And I didn't, I stayed put and, and invested in just a few companies and um, now everybody is sort of moving around, but I find that that the smartest companies are listening to their millennial employees. They're setting up millennial task forces. They're picking, they're doing sort of reverse mentoring, picking some shining stars to chat with more senior executives, listening to the ways that they want to be promoted and the ways they want to work. Um, And so that's been a pretty inspiring change. I don't think that every industry 
is jumping to make those changes. I think there's some, I think law and finance, you know, I still hear that there's, um, there's a lot of really entrenched, you know, hierarchical thinking and, um, it's not something, you know, it's sort of something that I see the young women that I know that are in those fields all have a side hustle, right? They might be, they might be at a corporate law firm or at a traditional finance firm, but they're incubating, um, a networking group on the side or incubating a creative workshop on the side. Um, so that's kind of, um, that's kind of another inspiring twist on the story. What about money? What are the the itchy emotions around money that these young women are experiencing? Does it come up during the dinners? Yes. Money is like usually the second thing that comes up. The third is always men. We always get to first is career, then money, then men. Yeah. Ambition, money, and men. In it, that it, it correlates with a Pew study actually that <laughs> looked at what are, what is top of mind for young women, career. And for men, it, it wasn't as much of the case. And uh, it begs the question, are young women more ambitious than men, young men at this stage? Uh, but that's maybe my second question. First, let's talk about money. So the money question is interesting because what I hear from young women is that they want to get paid fairly, equally. And that's what comes up. There's not a, It's not that um, they don't want to make bank, right? They're not asking to make huge money. I don't see that kind of money or even like... Pro, um, consumer lust, right? The, that idea of like flashy shows of of power, the car, the trips to St. Bart's, the jewelry, the shoes. Like I don't see that anymore among young women. They're incredibly um, practical when it comes to those things, but they want to get paid and they want to get paid fairly. And the anxiety, particularly at the beginning of their careers, is this idea that one young woman said to me is, how can I do my thing if I'm sitting here worried about how I'm going to pay my rent? And that's a real, that's a real concern. Like, how can you focus on being as big and as awesome as you can in the world if you have to check your bank balance before you get a manicure? You have to check your bank balance before you go to lunch. Um, so that is their big concern about money. They're not shy about asking for promotions and raises, which is, I think, pretty amazing. Um, money is also not top of mind when they're choosing jobs, the making big money. I, the sort of interesting story, um, I had a young woman just starting out on her first job, and she was telling me about her interview process, and she was down to the final, uh, in, down to the final interview. And her big question for the person who was interviewing her was not, when can I get started or how can I jump right in? Her question was, are you happy here? And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, that is such a significant change. Like I would never have asked that question at my first job. I would have said like, how can I jump in? I need to get, I need to start paying my bills. But her top of mind concern in getting a job was being at a place where she could be happy, where the other people were happy. Um, she was asking for more th from her entry-level position than just a paycheck, which I think is really powerful. It's a great question, but it also doesn't always get you an honest answer because, I mean, let's be honest, you're at an interview and it's, uh, well, you want to sell the person on the other side of the job. So you're not going to say, actually, you know what? I'm looking for a new job. Well, I guess, so I, her, I I guess her boss was impressed because they hired her. But okay. you're right. It, it would have it elicited a lot of eye rolls from a lot of people. Yeah. Well, good for her for asking that. But at the same time, do you think that it's a little bit of a 
a disadvantage that maybe they're not at least it's not as top of mind. I mean, it should be because we do see the statistics where young women do not ask for more on their first job. And it the studies show it results in a million dollars in lost wages potentially over the lifetime of their career when they don't ask for more in the beginning. It's not the most important thing, but you should at least earn what you're worth. How do you reconcile that a little bit with your with your, your cohorts? My goal in our conversations is to really sort of stoke their ambitions, to think about how can they dream bigger, imagine a bigger future for themselves, look for new possibilities. And, you know, the I think it's interesting that money is not their main drive, right? That they one girl described it as wanting to be a big shot. She wanted to be big. She wanted to have um, respect and career and um, she wanted to fall in love and have a family. Like she wanted to have um, this idea of the big life. Um, but money was only a piece of what was going to make her feel like a big shot, that it was it was all the other um, all the other pieces of her ambition that were that were laddering up to feel um, important to her. So I, I mean, I think you have to applaud that as well. Um, and at the same time, and then they should listen to your podcast about how. Yeah. I think, I think when you earn money. as a woman, it's a beautiful thing when you can earn a lot of money. I mean, it doesn't have to be crazy, but you know, I just feel that when women hold the money, they hold power in a beautiful way. I mean, money equals power, but for women, it's like power to help, power to heal, power to reach out and make a difference. And we need more of that in the world. Um, when I made that realization, because I got to a place in my life where I was like, I'm making enough and it's I'm more comfortable. And so I don't need to, you know, be worried about money to the point of, you know, making all this money. And then I thought someone said to me, but it's not just about you, you know, like you're a good person. You Money in your hands will mean a, a, the world can be a better place. And I think that for me was kind of a light bulb moment. And I and I think when others hear that, it, it's a it's a definitely a mind shift thing, and that makes you feel okay. Well, then there's more to making money than just making my life better. There's other people out there that can benefit too. I've heard a couple of the young women that I chat with um, say recently that they are very purposefully aiming to be the breadwinner in their family, um, that they want to wow. be the one. That, and I thought that was a big shift. I think that was, that's a big conversation because we talk about, I mean, certainly we talk about men and ambition, but then the conversation is very quickly followed by men and money. And I always ask who pays for drinks, right? Like you're going on, I mean, they go on the, on endless Tinder dates, but I want to know who picks up the check when you're on a proper date. Um, and we still have, it's very complicated, right? We still have a lot of old fashioned ideas about men and women and power and the roles that they should have. But I've started to see a couple of, I've started to hear a couple of young women say that they wanted to be the breadwinners in their family. That's very awesome. And I think that that is just going to be an ongoing trend. And, um, that's wonderful that they're, they're feeling confident about that already. So many women enter marriage, become the breadwinners or enter existing breadwinners, and they're at a loss because they don't really know how to deal with the emotional side of that. Now, tell me, Anne, this interview needs to transition a little bit now to talk a little bit more about Anne Choquette and how you see the world when it comes to money and as much as you're willing to share. I'd love to hear from you what your financial philosophy is on things. You live in New York, your mom your businesswoman. What's your financial philosophy? 
My financial philosophy is so simple, which is don't spend more than you make. I, um, and it's been that way sort of always. Um, I remember very vividly, like when I was going off to college that, um, my dad sat me down and we made a budget together and we went through everything that I would spend money on. And I remember saying, um, uh, like put in $10 a day for lunch. And my dad looked at me and he said, what are you going to do? You're going to have Snapple and bagels for lunch every day. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. Like, let's be realistic about what it means. Right. Cause I wanted to put more money in the going out on Friday column. <laughs> um, but that like really simple budgeting conversation when I was 17 years old, um, is so sort of ingrained in me now that, um, I really, that's, that's how, uh, my husband and I live our, that's how we live our financial life. We live in Manhattan. We have, um, two young kids and, you know, certainly life has changed in the last couple of years since we got married and had kids. Um, but we really do, um, that's the two of us together. He feels the same way. We, we live within our means. Time for a quick break to put the spotlight on one of our sponsors today, Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the most tax-efficient, low-cost, hassle-free way to invest. Now, many of you I know are interested in simplifying your investment strategy. You want to reduce fees. You want to work with a service that you trust. And Wealthfront delivers. It builds and manages your personalized, globally diversified portfolio. To open an account, the minimum is just $500, and that gets you a periodically rebalanced, diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds. There are zero trading fees, zero hidden fees, and advisory fees that are just a fraction of traditional advisors. In fact, Wealthfront manages your first $10,000 for free. To learn more and sign up, visit Wealthfront.com. When you were growing up, you mentioned that your dad being very instrumental with the budgeting, the talk. Where, what was your earliest memory of money? That was 17. Was there an earlier moment that was very pivotal for you that kind of captures your experience with money as a kid growing up and what you, what you understood it to mean? So my dad was an entrepreneur. Um, he was, uh, in the real estate business and I grew up, um, half in Philadelphia and half in Littleton, Colorado. And, um, my mom, uh, is a marriage and family therapist and she had her own practice. And, you know, I, I was funnily enough, sort of shielded from a lot of the money conversations. I don't know if I had a sense, um, I had a sense that we were doing fine, solidly middle-class, uh, had, you know, always had, there's always food and there was always a nice house and there was always some, there was, it was the eighties. So we, there was always shopping on the weekends, life revolved around the mall. Um, and, uh, but I don't know if I had much of a sense, um, before that of what money meant. I got a job as soon as I could. Um, but to me, that was much more about independence than having money. Um, I wanted to, I wanted responsibility and I wanted to be independent. Uh, I worked at a bookstore. I worked at a, I worked at a Walden. What's book. that? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They're coming, they're making a comeback bookstores. Um, I would hope so. I, you know, I had a great time. I would, I was in charge of stacking the magazines. So that, that helped put me on that path as well. But, um, it was a, it was a good time. <clears throat> Did you always know you wanted to run a magazine? I, I, I'm thinking of that movie 13 going on 30. Absolutely not. Jennifer Garner. 
No, you I mean, I, I love that movie, but no, I absolutely did not know. I, um, I went to college thinking that I was going to be a novelist, that I was going to be a writer. And, you know, thank God for my parents who didn't sort of push me into like, let's find a career where you could actually make some money. Because I came to that realization myself in my, I think it wasn't until my senior year where I thought, oh, wait, I went to NYU. I thought, oh, I have rent to pay and bills to pay. So, um, I got a job and the first, and I, and one of the pieces of advice that I give to young women is a piece of advice that I took myself was like, get a job, any job. You just need to learn how business works, how the world works, how an office works. And when I got out of college, it was, uh, there was a recession just like we had here <laughs> again recently. And there weren't a lot of jobs and nothing paid anything. And I, I, did every proper interview that you're meant to do. And in fact, I still have a stack of rejection letters that I don't know why I've held on to, but I have them, including 17. I was rejected. Wow. Um, but I got a job at the American Lawyer Magazine, which was not anybody's dream job when you're 21 years no. old. But it turns out that the, the American Lawyer was run by this sort of legendary journalist named Steve Brill. And... Um, and I managed not to get fired. He was he was also legendary for firing people. So I managed not to get fired. And I just learned how to be a reporter. I listened to how people um, reported. I listened to how I paid attention to how stories got put together. I was there at the time he owned Court TV as well. And I was there at the time of the O.J. Simpson trials. Um, so it was an exciting time to be there. And everybody was paying attention to um, sort of legal journalism for the time being. So... But that's a really important piece of advice I give to young women is like, just get a job. You don't know where it's going to lead. It might lead nowhere. It might lead somewhere amazing. The American Lawyer, there are at least a few top editors in New York, if not editor and chiefs managing editors who started there. And big book writers. Mm -hmm. um, Steve is still like a big figure in journalism. Um, he had the, the longest Time magazine cover story, I think, the biggest Time magazine cover story uh, about a year ago. Um, it was an amazing place to be. I didn't know that at the time. I just needed to pay my rent. <laughs> uh, speaking of, how do you, when you have these dinners with these young women, they're living in New York, a lot of them, when they talk about money, what's their biggest budgeting constraint? I would imagine it is rent. They're all living, like they all have roommates, um, multiple roommates, and they're living not always in like the most convenient places, right? But it's like there's energy and hunger. Um, one of the most amazing young women who came to dinner was dressed to the nines. I mean, she just looked amazing. And I complimented her in her dress and she said, oh, it's rent the runway. I'm on the unlimited a plan and I can, and I can have all the dresses I want. So if it's dinner at Anne's house or a date or a business meeting, I get a different dress for every occasion. And I just thought to myself, that was the smartest thing I'd ever heard. Wow. Well, how much does that cost still though? It's a subscription. It's a subscription. I think it's, I think it's maybe a hundred dollars a month. Is that hmm. possible? Let's ask those girls. That is impressive. You know, Martha Runway is it's a phenomenally successful business. So it doesn't surprise me. 
What's Those your... the Runway Girls are incredibly impressive. And, and when I met Jen and Jenny, the founders, mm-hmm. they leaned across the table. We were having breakfast and they said to me, Anne, let's talk about the economics of your closet. And I thought to myself, oh my God, no, let's not. That sounds like a disastrous conversation yeah. to have. But you know what? Like the idea that they're thinking about fashion as an economic principle and mm-hmm. something that, you know, it's a place you spend money and it should be of value to you. That's a really life-changing idea. It is. They're exceptional. Tell me a little bit about failure. Uh, We all have financial failures, large, small, medium-sized. What's something that you did, whether it may have been like 10 years ago or yesterday, that you you don't regret, but it was not your proudest financial moment? Or maybe you do regret it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's funny. I... I never want to look at something like a failure, right? I know that we have that we have a whole culture that's brewing around around admitting failure, although I just can't go there. And I always want to think of it as like some great learning experience. And I'm I am I was really trying to come up with something good, a good story to tell you here. Um, but I I don't have a great I don't have a great story. I'm sure there are splurges I wish I didn't make, probably on shoes or a handbag. Um and I don't have a great, I don't have a great story for failure. That's, I wish I did. Well, when you make purchasing decisions, when you decide on what to buy, like I know you, you don't want to talk about the economics of your closet, but how do you weigh decisions when it comes to things like fashion? It's important in some ways to have the right look. And we, I just got off a podcast with a guest who her job is to make sure that women are dressed to their their best for work. Um, I absolutely think that's important. I think that what you are wearing says a lot about you. Uh, one of the stories that I highlighted in my newsletter a couple of weeks ago was a woman who was a reporter at the New York Times said she felt like she was young and she felt like she didn't belong there. And then she pointed to the fact that she would wear sneakers and jeans and a blazer to work every day. And it wasn't until she, she talked about having, um, having gone in the other extreme that she dressed up like cookie from empire. And, but her (laughs) realization was that what you wear projects to other people and says, says something about you. So I absolutely pay attention to that. What I wore as editor in chief of the magazine is different than what I wear now in my consulting world. Um, It's certainly different than what I wore when I was coming up in the world um, I pay attention to the young women who come and have um, dinner with me. I pay attention to the young women in New York City and what is their look saying about them. I think the cool thing is that we've come to a place where if you see a chick who's sitting next to you and she's got green hair at the coffee shop, like she's not some drop out of society lunatic anymore. She's probably running her own startup. Like she's someone mm-hmm. who is paying attention, but she's saying to you, I don't need to worry about you and your corporate rules over there. Um, so absolutely, I think um, I think that what you wear says something about you. Um, what I have seen is so interesting is that um, in the magazine world, it's all about shoes, right? There's and, and women are sort of obsessed in a way with shoes. But because you can seen- be fat, skinny, you can go up 10 pounds, down 30, and you, your shoes will always love you. It will always hug your feet. But that idea of like the Manolos and the Louboutins as like this, as this symbol of success, 
for women. I think that's really shifting. The women who I see now are not, um, they're not interested in spending $700 on shoes. If they had $700, they would spend it on something else. They would spend it on probably an experience, Taylor Swift tickets, something something else. I think you're onto something there. And I think that it's not necessarily generational, but it's one of those financial conundrums. When you don't have the money you want for things that once you get the money, you realize, I don't want to pay for that because now you've earned the money. You know how hard it takes to earn that $700 and you value that $700 far differently than when you didn't have it. And all you wanted was to look a certain way, have the shoes. And I, and I, I've gone through that myself. You know, I will lust after things and I'm like, if I only had the money, then one day I get the money and I'm not going to buy that thing because I have, other, you know what? I think there's other things that I would like rather like to, I would rather spend my money on. Yeah, so absolutely. I think it's a growing, it's just something you learn as you get older and you start to work for your money and harder for your money and you start to make the good money. And if you still want to buy the shoes, go for it. But more often than not, you realize, "Mm, I think I'd rather put that in my 401k. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We talked about this offline, you and I once, and I would love to revisit this conversation a little bit. The Lean In it was such an important book in some ways. It went on to become a bestseller, multiple languages. It started a movement. But for the millennial woman, you don't think it was that applicable. Um, Why? You know, I do applaud that book for opening a national dialogue about women in power and really continuing to raise this conversation about women at work, women finding their own power. But what I find with young women is that their idea of what power and success looks like is different than the picture that Sheryl Sandberg painted. Um, that they, that I think, um, I mean, I mentioned this before that, that find working your way up the ladder at a corporation does not appeal. Um, the sort of Cheryl herself, her all in all consuming job, um, you know, the young women that I see are much interest, much more interested in zigs and zags and nurturing, um, their home life and nurturing their, you know, nurturing their um, color runs or their passion projects. And um, I just, I think that um, this idea of, of investing in a company that's going to invest in you, that young women have seen that isn't the case and they are investing in themselves, betting on themselves doing startups, um, side projects, passion projects, you know, all of the different, all of the different zigs and zags, which is not to say that they don't, they're not still ambitious, Mm -hmm. um, but they see, they see their path to the top in a different way. What is this all going to mean for marriage and children and all those other life milestones? If women are investing so much more in themselves in their 20s and 30s, which I applaud. And I I was one of those women. I got married later in life. Um, How do you see that changing the dynamic there? We're already seeing people marry later in life. Is that contributing to that? You know, this is one of the most complicated questions that I've been wrestling wrestling with as I'm writing my book. And um, I have seen this game-changing, rule-breaking generation of young women 
that are so confident that they're going to walk into their boss's office and ask for a promotion, ask for a title change, ask for their work to go differently, ask to work four days a week, whatever it is. But when it comes to relationships, they are still holding on to some very traditional ideas of what that should look like. Um, and, you know, the it's a really complicated dynamic. What I have seen, and I think you and I have talked about this a little bit, is that sort of the most alpha girls who come and have dinner, who are part of my circle, they're the ones who have the kind of beta guys, not not lesser, just softer, not as hard charging, um, not as um, maybe not as ambitious. And they're, they're finding tremendous happiness there. So that's that's an interesting, I think, an interesting dynamic. But um, it's one of the most complicated questions about ambition and ambitious women. And how is their ambition being met on the other side, the world, men? Are we, I, we're warming up to it. We like it. We're supporting it. We're cheerleading it. But is there resistance as well? I think that there is, I think they find some guys are like, bring it on. Yes. I want a teammate. I want a partner. And frankly, those are the ones who I tell young women, like go for the guy whose eyes light up when you talk about your ambition, not the guy who wants to diminish you. And in subtle ways, you know, make it seem oh so quaint and charming that you are um, hustling so hard. You know, there's a lot of that happens. I have my radar up for that when young women tell me about the dates that they go on. I'm always paying attention for if he's like, oh, he says he's supportive, but he's, but he's really like, he's really kind of threatened. Um, and there's still a lot of that happens. I think, um, I mean, it's interesting. I think you're right that the older you get, the more, um, the more confident you can be in your own ambition and maybe the more confident men are in their own position in the world. Yeah, I think that's going to change too. I think if that is, I see it, I see it, well, I saw it in my reporting for my book, When She Makes More. It's one of the dilemmas, one of the complexities of being in a relationship, in a male-female relationship when there are these very uh, traditional ideas of what it means to be a man in a relationship, what it means to be a woman in a relationship. But I think that the silver lining to that is we are seeing that happen. We don't like it. And young women are changing. They're, they're specifically looking hopefully for men who will be accepting of that. And, and at the same time, men are also, hopefully young men are realizing that the playing field's getting really is leveling and women are in fact, maybe even more so tilting more in the favor of women. They're going to college more. They're getting the good jobs. In some cases, um, more jobs than men. So this is, you know, there women are a force. And we, you got to either play with us or go play on your own side. Um, so Amen. it's nice to see. And what is your number one money habit? Do you have habits that, uh, well, we all have habits, good and bad. But when it comes to money, what's your number one consistent money habit? Doesn't have to be every day, but it's something that you do consciously to help you with your, whether it's deciding on how to buy things or budgeting, investing, things like that. I pay my credit card bills in full every month. I do not have revolving credit. Um, you know, having grown up in women's magazines, we did all of those stories where you cut your credit cards. And I actually 
you know, I very, I was about to say I pay in cash, which is not true. I just, I never, I never seem to have cash actually anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, but I act as though I do. And I pay my credit card bills in full every month because it would drive me crazy to, um, it drives me crazy to see late fees. It drives me crazy to see the, um, the interest. I just pay in full. Excellent. I do it. And live within my means, right? Mm -hmm. So that way I'm forcing myself to live within my means. I check my, I do that. And I also check the statement regularly. I don't wait till the end of the month because I find that it's too easy when you automate to just really disassociate with how much you're really spending. And not only that, to see, make, to make sure the charges are correct. Like Trader Joe's double charged me the other day (laughs) by accident, obviously, but, um, I, I had to catch it, you know, to be able to, you know, flag it and then ultimately take it off my bill. Um, awesome. All right. And let's do some so money fill in the blanks. This is a lightning round where I ask, I start a sentence and you finish it. First thing that comes to mind. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say a hundred million bucks, the first thing I would do is. The first thing I would do is, um, set up my parents. Uh, my mom is, uh, 71 years old and works two jobs. She loves working, um, but I would like her to work less. My dad is retired in Florida. I would, um, I would set them up and my husband's parents as well. Uh, my husband's parents are in Australia. Wow. I would set everybody up family first. Family the first. second, the second thing I would do though is, um, back to family. Uh, my husband is an engineer in his heart. Uh, he's an aerospace engineer and he um, I want to work with him to like revolutionize air travel. It drives me crazy that it takes us so long to get to Australia. I mean, it ta- it's a 21 hour like flight and it's, it's debilitating. And he has this idea that he can change um, air travel and a hundred million dollars would really help. Can we first start with railroads though? I feel like it, uh, we need to transform getting around in our country First, I agree. It's like our bridges, our tunnels, our railroad system is just the infrastructure here is just absolutely terrible. Um, you know, and then I'd love to get to Australia a lot faster, too. But can we just get like, can, can you get to me to Philadelphia in less than like 14 hours if I'm going on Amtrak? Agree. I'm not a I'm not a fan of cars in any way. So if we could if I could take the train everywhere, I would. When I spend the one thing that makes my life easier or better is. Um, I have a amazing nanny um, that you can't, I don't know how you can have, uh, have a big career and have kids without having someone who you trust and um, love in your life. And that is my nanny. Um, and so that's a, that is, she makes my life, she just makes my life. That's great. It's really hard to find someone like that to be not even help, like really a team member on your family, in your family to be there and that your kids are that love and is just invaluable. She said to me when we met that we, she, we wanted to be partners. And I was like, yes, that is what I want. I need someone who's going to be my partner. My, my schedule is complicated. Life is complicated Mm -hmm. and gets in the way. Um, you know, these are the, these are the things that you need in life. My greatest splurge is I shoes. I can't. I still, I still, I still have We just spent all this time talking about what's the deal with the Malone, Manolos. Oh. And I just. I know, but I grew up with the shoes. Do you know what? I just sold a pair of um, 
fancy shoes on Tradesy. And I, I made a, a nice penny and I sold it in like an hour. Oh, great. I need to look that up. I've been, one of the important things that I learned um, is the real real and selling things on the real real. And that was part of the economics of my closet is like real, real. spend real money. And I, I, and I need to, um, I need to be able to get some of that money back too. So I'll look up Tradesy. Tradesy. Yes. Um, the site sells beautiful designer goods, wedding dresses. And as a seller, I just felt so it, it was so addicting. You know? Like, wow, that sold really quickly. I, I subsequently put up two dresses. If you actually go to Tradesy, you can probably see my account. I have, I sold a pair of shoes. I have two dresses, which are not doing very well. Dresses don't do so well unless they're super designer, but these are like more kind of, you know, lower, middle to lower end designer. And, um, but the shoe went like hotcakes. All right. When I was younger, the one thing I wish I had learned about money is? There is not, uh, it's not endlessly up, up, up that like that sometimes sits down, sometimes it twists sideways, um, that you really need to, um, you just can't expect there always to be more. Yeah. When I donate, I like to give to blank because? Charities that support young women and girls, 100%. I donate with my time. I donate with my money. Um, I, it's all about um, how can we create opportunities for young women. Are millennial women philanthropic more than you've seen other generations? Absolutely. And more, they want meaning in everything. They want meaning in their work. They want meaning in their, um, you know, in their life. They want meaning in the, the food that they buy and in the clothes that they buy. Really, really philanthropic. This is a sidebar question only because it enrages me a little bit when I look at the young women who are getting the spotlight in the media and I'm pop culture, Miley Cyrus. I just feel like they're... I don't like her. And well, Miley actually has a big, <laughs> she's put a lot of effort behind helping homeless youth. And I wish that there hmm. had been a bigger story. Can had we been focus on that? About that. There's probably a lot of beautiful sides to Miley Cyrus. I don't like the side that I keep seeing on Yahoo.com and on Twitter and on the MTV Movie Awards or whatever music awards. I just feel that she's exploiting herself in such a way that she could be such a, she is beloved and there are more there and not just her not to single her out but even a lot of these other young celebrities feel like they're whether it's their own PR or it's just the media is very more much more interested in the other things I just feel like it's a it's a lost opportunity to really be a positive role model well there it's probably on us too is to figure out how to highlight the work that she's Mm -hmm. done because I think that she is serious about about homeless teens. And I think that's important. And she's frankly done a lot in changing the, some of the ideas about LGBT teens and talking about that, you know, making that part of the conversation. Um, that's one of the conversations, especially with teens that I've really been amazed has been so important and really brought to the forefront. Um, the sort of level of acceptance and support, um, is just inspiring. Well, I didn't think it would happen, but you've convinced me to give her a, more of a chance. Okay, good. <sighs> um, how about this? I'm Anne Choquette, and I'm so money because? 
because I am the biggest cheerleader for this generation of young women. I believe in their power and their potential, and I am honored to live in a world that they are going to create. Thank you so much, Anne. So lucky to have you as their cheerleader. I think there couldn't be a a more perfect, more fitting, more experienced, more loud cheerleader than Anne Choquette. Thank you so much for coming on the show and shedding a lot of insight into this important generation. They're a force to be reckoned with. And um, I look forward to reading your book one day. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I loved it. Thank you. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Anne, her website, annechoquette.com. She's also on Twitter at Anne Choquette. Check out the audio transcript and comments from this episode and all previous episodes at somoneypodcast.com. And there you can click on Ask Farnoosh, where you can send me your question for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh, whether it's about money, career, kids, you name it, I try to tackle it. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope your day is so money. So money.